Okay, so big conversation I'm hearing is the continued focus on the slumping tech markets, which are affecting company valuations and private companies' ability to raise capital. And then there's the tech layoffs. So I'm guessing that this is what we're going to dig into this week. Yeah, I wanted to better understand what's happening, right? And, and what factors are leading to these now continued layoffs and freezes. We're, we're in like four months now. All right, well, if we're going to do that, can we, like, please do something fun, too? Yes, yes, that's a good idea, actually. So I want to play a game. I'm going to call it Winners and Losers of the Week. And then I also have an interview with CNBC's senior media and tech reporter, Julie Borstein, the author of When Women Lead, who's here to tell us stories of women who've defied the odds and transformed business. And she uses data to reveal how they did it. All right, well, good. At least we'll end on a high note there. Uh, and so I'm glad to hear that. Really exciting conversation that I know you had with Julia just last week. So listeners will definitely want to stick around for that. Yeah, and it all begins right after we roll the intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. And first, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from One Trust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the One Trust team for their support. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security again HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. 
Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. Okay, so top of mind for nearly everyone in the tech industry this week are the layoffs. Big tech announcing a slew of layoffs this year as Amazon, Twitter, other companies eh, that aren't necessarily big tech have announced that they're paring back their workforce. Many more announcing that they are slowing hiring or freezing hiring for the time being. Tech layoffs accelerated uh, just recently as Stripe slashed 1,000 jobs or 14% of its workforce. Uh, Lyft and Affirm joined the fray. Twitter recently made big cuts as Elon Musk cut the Twitter workforce essentially in half. And now Meta is getting ready to announce major cuts as well. First big takeaway from the massive recalibrations is that leaders, they dramatically overestimated tech's pandemic-fueled boom. Or, I don't know, maybe they thought they had more to do with the growth than they actually did. Um, So even as COVID-19, when it shut down most of the economy, the digital realm continued to thrive. Everyone was stuck at home. They're on their devices all day. More time absorbing ads, more buying things online. But as we know, in the last year, year and a half, that trend has started to reverse as people have moved back into the physical world and people are just using their devices a bit less. And even before the pandemic boom, I mean, things were pretty good. Uh, For the last 10 years, tech companies, including Snap, Meta, Google, even Stripe, they've been working from a different playbook. They were pretty much minting and spending money at incredible (laughs) rates. Uh, They massively overpaid for talent because they could. Their margins were amazing, really. I mean, they acquired huge companies at high prices because what else were they going to do with all that capital that they had? Yes. I mean, I've lost teammates in the last year because companies were simply doubling their salaries and job offers. And they already had like high tech salaries, but, you know, we couldn't compete. So I had to let the folks go. Also, the part that tech companies don't like to talk about so much is that the competition has also caught up with them including many traditional companies that have become more tech-savvy and efficient. Yeah, Stripe is one of many payment processors now, um, and they no longer have the lowest rates on the market, for instance. Twitter, they're dealing with competition from Instagram, Snap, now TikTok, and it's 280-character platform. It's feeling kind of antiquated compared to like the high-energy videos being posted to those other apps. Google search, they actually have seen a net loss of market share on a year-over-year basis. I mean, it's slight, but cracks are starting to show a little bit. There does seem to be a far bigger reckoning than the adjustment of growth levels post-pandemic, and it's a trend that's playing out at great speed. It's related to the macro environment, but it's also far deeper, and its impact will be immense for those companies who have previously enjoyed little competition from small and medium-sized players in the market. I was also reminded of this while reading John and Patrick Collison's letter to Stripe employees when they announced their layoffs. The Stripe co-founders were candid about the failure to predict where the economy was heading, but they also said they overspent on things like coordination costs. And I don't know, that just sounds like a reflection of getting too big, too inefficient. Um, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that or they have worked, maybe they are working at places that have just grown too fast and uh, feel a bit bloated. 
Now, for a long time, tech companies and their stellar businesses, they could stomach those massive costs, but now they can't, many of them. So is this a permanent correction as the rest of the world has begun to catch up? Or is this kind of a temporary recalibration for these giants of the tech industry? Yeah, it's hard to say, but it does feel like we're going to be in this correction phase for at least a little while, especially as interest rates continue to rise. Ah, you said the I word, right? <laughs> so I've been reading a lot about economists who have grown wary of a potential downturn as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates in an attempt to bring inflation under control. As people spend less on goods and services, the idea is that prices should drop. But I don't know, in Canada, we have not seen that at all. And this risks triggering a recession since businesses are slowing down on hiring, they're laying off workers in response to that drop in demand. Now, the good news is that most workers in the tech industry who are getting laid off, they don't appear to be struggling to find other job opportunities. Yeah, here's Julia Pollack, the chief economist at ZipRecruiter on Bloomberg Markets and Finance earlier this week actually talking about the layoffs. Well, what's interesting in the labor market is that both employers and job seekers seem very, very aware of the possible risk of a downturn. And so they actually seem to be taking steps now uh, to buckle up their seatbelts and get ready for a bumpy ride. We see job seekers saying that they are becoming less likely to negotiate an offer, more likely to, to sign that deal quickly because they worry that jobs will become less plentiful. We see employers coming up with all kinds of plans to reduce headcount should they need to if sales and orders and revenues start to fall. So everyone seems like they're actually being quite conservative in this labor market. Job seekers are looking for jobs with job security. They're not, they don't want to quit a job without another one lined up. They're becoming a bit more cautious and conservative, and so are employers. So overall, while there might be some disruption at the top, it, it does seem like companies overall are still looking for tech talent. And those affected by the layoffs, hopefully they could find new work quickly. Yeah, folks may have to come to terms with maybe a slightly lower salary or give up some of those immense benefits that they received at the giants like Meta and Google. But Overall, I think we're going to be okay. We're all going to make it, right? We're all going to make <laughs> it. Uh, with that, we, let's take a quick break here. So we'll be right back, and we'll talk about some of those winners and losers from the week that Michael referenced right after this quick break. Okay, so I wanted to try something different. I don't know. Maybe I've been listening to too many fantasy football podcasts, <laughs> but I thought it would be fun to break down some of this week's tech and product news into a segment called Winners and losers. Winners and losers. All right. Well, where do we start? <laughs> okay. So one of the big winners this week was actually Binance, who were able to buy one of their biggest competitors in the crypto exchange space, FTX, in a literal fire sale. Yeah. I started getting some Coinbase notifications about how crazy <laughs> the markets have been, and I, I did see that, but I didn't really follow all the details. So, Michael, why don't you fill me in here? Okay, I'm going to try the best I can. So, FTX was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, who I, he's a prolific investor in the crypto world. He's worth up to a reported $14 billion. He founded both the FTX Exchange and Alameda Research, which is his trading firm. And they're both known as like giants in the industry. Yeah, I remember Miami Heat's arena um, was renamed after FTX. So, wow. What happened? Okay, so um, Sequoia, they they invested $420 million in FTX at a $25 billion valuation in October of 2021. 
Then there was kind of a consortium with Paradigm investing $400 million at a $32 billion valuation in January of 2022, so just 10 months ago. Okay, I'm, I'm following you so far. So I'm going to summarize here because there's a lot of moving pieces. But if there are like deep crypto folks out there, they've been following every detail. I apologize. I probably missed something. But basically, FTX had a token that it minted. And Alameda was the largest holder of this token. When Binance found out that Alameda had half of its assets stored in this FTX token, it announced that it was going to sell off all of its FTX tokens. And there were a lot of them, right? And this set off a fire sale of that token in the already skittish crypto industry, and it tanked the value. This then plummeted both the value of Alameda Holdings and the FDS exchange. Um, and they were in then a situation where they didn't have enough liquidity to support the exchange. And in a fire sale, they sold their assets to Binance. Wow. Okay, what a move there. So Binance basically just took out one of the largest competitors overnight with this sell-off. Crypto, I don't know, it just seems like it has such a long way to go until it's this stable thing, doesn't it? It really does, yes. <laughs> wow, all right, well, um, I'll go with some of the big losers of this week. Um, one of them being Elizabeth Holmes, who ended up getting denied a new trial, which paves the way for the entrepreneur to be sentenced next week for defrauding investors. And potentially, she could get sent to prison as soon as later this month. Now, Elizabeth Holmes was convicted in January on four counts of wire fraud and conspiracy while running her blood testing startup, Theranos. She has spent the intervening months trying to essentially change that fate. She's filed three requests for a new trial based on newly acquired evidence. Now, I'm not sure what that evidence could have been because, I mean, they literally have her on tape lying to investors. Yeah, well, it wasn't good enough for a judge either, so <laughs> she's going to end up being sentenced on November 18th. That's been a long time coming. Okay, I've got another loser here. Tiger Global Management. Have you heard of these guys? Yeah, they're the investment firm that's been essentially throwing a lot of money around these last couple of years at really, really giant valuations at really a record-breaking speed. And generally, I mean, one might say a lack of due diligence too. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> that's been their calling card. So there's this article floating around about nine public tech companies worth less than what VCs originally invested. Ugh. Ouch. Yeah. So one of them was the insurance tech firm Root. And venture capitalists, including Tiber Global Management and Ribbit Capital, they sank roughly $674 million into the company before it went public in 2020. At that public filing, it raised an additional $1.1 billion. And today, Root's market capitalization is a little over $100 million. Yeah, that's not good. And I know Root very well. They are an Ohio company. I, I know many huh. people that um, that are, have been a part of Root. And yeah, it's kind of been one of Ohio's success stories, except for these last few years in particular. So, um, or the last couple of years, I should say. So yeah, definitely, definitely not good. Yeah, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yeah, so uh, the firm Tiger Global, they lost uh, another 5.4% in October, and that takes their losses for the year uh, to 54.7%. Yeah, so if that's not a sign of the times, I don't know what is. 
yeah, it does seem like kind of sum up the past two years in a nutshell, right? A, a real boom and bust. But um, many of the companies in that worst performing uh, group, they operate labor intensive businesses and it makes it difficult to reach profitability without massive scale. Like Lyft, for instance, they need a whole fleet of drivers who take a cut of every fare. Um, the real real manually vets the authenticity of secondhand goods that they sell. There's real estate firm Compass, and they pay out roughly 80% of its revenue and commissions to its real estate agents. Yeah, profit seems hard to come by in this class of startups where the VC money flowed, which is a good lesson for people building today. I mean, watch your actual margins. You know, that that term EBITDA, it, it does mean something, right? We, we should maybe be paying attention to these things. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, one uh, final winner of the week, uh, the app... Mastodon, which is seeing record high downloads as Elon Musk ushers users off of Twitter with his invitation <laughs> to right-wing trolls to take back over the site. At least that's, that's what some people might be be thinking as they see what's been happening at Twitter these last couple of weeks. Fair enough. Fair enough. And Mastodon is, it's really interesting, actually. It's a free and open source software for running self-hosted social networking services. It has microblogging features, kind of like Twitter, um, but it's offered independently on these Mastodon nodes, technically known as instances, where each has its own code of conduct, its own terms of service, its own privacy options, and even moderation policies. Yeah. Um, you know, essentially kind of puts the control back into the user's hands as each user is a member of a specific Mastodon instance, uh, also called a server, which can interoperate as a federated social network, um, which allows users on different nodes to interact with each other. It's intended to give users the flexibility to select a server whose policies they prefer, but keep access to a larger social network. Mastodon is also part of the Fediverse ensemble of server platforms, which uses shared protocols, allowing users to also interact with other users on other compatible platforms. I don't know what you just said, but the future, it's its going to be weird. I mean, I'm here for it, but it's, <laughs> it's getting complicated. I totally hear you, Michael. And you know what? It's a little complicated for me. We run this tech <laughs> podcast and even I don't know what I just said. And I don't know if I'm the perfect user for Mastodon quite yet, but right. people are talking about it, uh, ironically, on Twitter uh, that I've seen. So <laughs> right, we'll exactly. have to see what happens. Uh, but, you know, we should take a quick break now. And then we're going to come back with our interview with CNBC's senior media and tech reporter, Julie Borstein. Okay, so we're back, and I'm here with Julie Borstein. Julia, welcome to the show. I wanted to start um, hearing about your inspiration for for writing the book. Why, why spend so much time and research digging in here? Yes, I devoted years of my life to writing When Women Lead. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the answer really comes down to my experience as a journalist. I've been a business journalist now for 22 years, the first six years of my career at Fortune Magazine. The, the past 16 years at CNBC, and I've been very lucky to see some of the best leaders in the world and to interview them. I've interviewed literally thousands of CEOs, executives, founders, and I love my job. And I found myself in the past maybe five or 10 years noticing slowly that even though the business world is totally dominated by men, there started to be more and more women, particularly in the entrepreneurial space. 
And I was really inspired by them. And I found they they seem to be solving problems differently, thinking about challenges differently, approaching things differently. And they were, of course, in the tiny, tiny minority. So I, I created this project called the Disruptor 50 at CNBC. And every year we look at the 50 fastest growing startups. And particularly in that space, in the entrepreneurial space, I noticed on one hand, women were creating phenomenal, totally industry-changing companies. And on the other hand, they were getting very little access to capital. Over the past decade or so, women have on average, female leaders have on average gotten 3% of all venture capital dollars. In 2021, that number actually dropped to 2%. So I saw that these women were the exceptions to the rule, but also that they had to be exceptional to defy those odds. So the project started out with me wanting to tell their stories. I was so inspired by these women. I wanted more people to hear their stories. And then from there, I realized I needed to get the academic research to explain and to understand what their strategies were. And what I found over the course of about 120 interviews, connecting those interviews to the data I was finding in about 300 academic studies, that there's some strategies that women have taken in leadership. Traditionally, women are more likely to take in leadership and management that actually are incredibly effective and are things that everyone should be doing right now of any gender. So. Tell us about what what are some of those takeaways that you found that we should be doing, um, but it, it sounds like women were employing at a, a greater cadence. Yeah, so for instance, female leaders are more likely to deploy empathy. There's a lot of research showing that women tend to be more empathetic. But guess what? Empathy can be learned. Empathy can be practiced. So empathy is incredibly effective if you're trying to connect with your team, um, trying to uh, to connect with employees who may be remote or quiet quitting or whatever the challenge is these days. Empathy is incredibly important to put yourself in the shoes of your customer or your client. Never, never mind the fact that you need to be empathetic to understand what investors or partners want and need to be able to make a deal with them. So empathy is incredibly, incredibly important. Another one that's interesting is vulnerability. Vulnerability has not traditionally been associated with strength in leadership, but in fact, so much research has found that when leaders show vulnerability to their teams, that invites collaboration and it invites question asking and enables other people to admit what they don't know, what they wanna learn and what they can bring to the table. So I've seen so many female leaders use vulnerability as a way to attract top talent. Vulnerability is key to being a talent magnet because the people who are coming to you, they know that their skills are gonna be valued and they're gonna have not only a seat at the table, but an opportunity to take the lead themselves. So those are two of the key ones. And those are characteristics that women are more likely to deploy, but they are learnable, they are teachable. Everyone can improve their vulnerability and their empathy quotient. And then one that was really surprising to me in terms of an internal skill, practicing mm -hmm. gratitude. I had no idea oh. that gratitude had any connection with success in business. I think of gratitude as something you think about with your family and your life, but not in the workplace. But it turns out that there's a real correlation between practicing gratitude and being able to take a long-term perspective or a long-term approach. And I found in these CEOs I was interviewing, these founders of these phenomenal, game-changing, successful businesses, they were talking about gratitude over and over and over. And I actually discovered this when I had a couple of back-to-back -back interviews where the women were talking about focusing on their own gratitude for their opportunity to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were grateful that they had the skill set 
to address a certain issue. And I heard so, uh, gratitude mentioned so many times that I went back through my transcripts that I found dozens and dozens of references to feeling grateful. And then I went into the data and I said, aha, that's why these women are founding companies for a hundred years from now, because they're driven by gratitude and not that panic and that scarcity feeling of, I don't have enough right now, so I better, better rush and have the, the near-term outcome. It's better term, to yeah. feel grateful for what you have now and go for the long-term one. Did you find that there was more long-term thinking? Yeah, I think the gratitude really translates with a long-term focus. So what was interesting is once I found all these examples of gratitude, I went and dug into the research and there's so much fascinating social science um, in, in these dozens of, of academic studies I found. And there's one study that sums it up to me the best. If the social scientists took a bunch of, uh, of, of people and they said, we're gonna ask you if you want $50 now or we're gonna mail you a check for $84. And most people pick $50 now rather than waiting a, a week or so and getting a check for $84. If they asked those people to do a practice where they wrote about something that made them happy, they still pick the $50 rather than the $84, which is effectively more than a 50% increase down the road. So then they asked people to do a study about gratitude, a practice of gratitude, write something that made them feel grateful. Overwhelmingly, the people who had written about something that made them feel grateful they opted for the $84 down the road. So there's something about thinking about how lucky you are that changes your 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 perspective, enables you to plan more for the long term. And I write about this more in the book, but that was something that Very really, cool. really surprised me. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I know you did a ton of interviews, collected a ton of stories um, for this book. What was the first story that you collected where you realized, I'm I'm on to something. Uh, maybe you were inspired to, to continue, but what was what was that first kind of milestone um, story? Well, I think it actually started when I was at CNBC working on my Disruptor 50 list. So for our Disruptor okay. 50 every year, this is my favorite project at CNBC. I created this project about 11 years ago. The idea is that we look at the fastest growing, most innovative private companies. And I created this framework because at CNBC, we're always focusing on public companies, but this is a, a framework to look at private companies in the context of they're either gonna be the giants of tomorrow or they're currently disrupting the giants of tomorrow. And I remember interviewing this woman who's the CEO of a company called Lanza Tech. You've probably never heard of it, but it's a biotech company that uses a microbe to digest pollution. And as she put it to me, as the CEO put it to me, they eat pollution and it poops out fuel. So this sounds like magic to me, but it's a crazy company. I went into the lab in, in, in Chicago to see these microbes turning turning pollution into fuel and into plastic no and into other things. And she's a, the woman who's a CEO is like almost, she's maybe five feet tall. She's a Colombian immigrant. She's very soft-spoken. And I just thought she was amazing. And she was describing to me how she's often been underestimated and how she's a total introvert and she prefers to listen rather than speak. She didn't really like to do a TV interview, but she was doing it because she was proud of her company's accomplishments. And as she described to me how she'd been able to negotiate these deals with people like Richard Branson for to sell them their fuel for, for the Virgin Airlines, I was like, this woman is amazing. And she's succeeding, not by fitting the stereotype of what a leader looks like. She's not an, a, a charming extrovert. She's quiet and she's thoughtful. But she said to me, you know, I figured out that if I don't talk very much, I don't like to talk and I could really figure out what my when I'm negotiating what the other person really wants not what they say at first but you wait and you wait and they expect you to talk but you don't 
and then ultimately you find out what they really want, which isn't the first thing they do, they said. So she figured out how to use her introversion as a real superpower in business. And I thought to myself, and I write about her in the book, Jennifer Holgrid, she's amazing. I thought this is a this is a, an example of a, an, a CEO, a leader, who is succeeding despite the odds and by doing things entirely her own way and represents a really different model of leadership. And I think that more people need to understand that they don't need to fit themselves into the leadership box. And if they can figure out what they're good at and what will enable them to succeed in their own way, they're gonna be far more successful over the long run rather than trying to contort themselves to fit the stereotype of what a leader looks like. And by the way, women don't fit that stereotype anyways. Do you do you feel like they're, I mean, it, it's about when women lead, but it sounds like there's a lot for all of us to learn from some of these these stories. Um, that one in particular, right? There's a lot of leaders that are introverts, but they don't. Yeah, there's no model for them to succeed, of all genders, right? Yeah. I it just, um, it, I'd be curious. Were there other takeaways, other stories of, of kind of abnormal founders that you found um, that were particularly? I would say extraordinary, not abnormal. Extraordinary. extraordinary. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? But I would say all the women in this book offer a model and offer kind of a roadmap for everyone. And I really think it's important that men read this book because we all want to figure out how to succeed in this new, crazy, uncertain business landscape. The one thing we know for sure is that there is uncertainty, right? We have inflation. We have fear of a recession. There's a war in Ukraine. There are so many questions. Is there going to be another COVID wave? What does the future look like? Nobody knows. But the women in this book have shown the adaptability quotient that is essential right now. And I think that people just don't know these stories. We need to have more examples of successful leaders out there who look and sound different and are doing things their own way. So first of all, I just think the examples and this, this sort of case studies are really valuable as people want the, the, can use this book to kind of serve as a mirror to hold up to themselves and say, what can I find of myself in this? Maybe I'm a little introverted. Yeah. Maybe I could use this strategy of, of a high adaptability quotient, being really well prepared. So I think there's this element of how this book is a mirror to everyone. But I also think that now more than ever, the characteristics that women are more likely to have, like empathy, like vulnerability, like being more likely to found purpose-driven companies, that's what we need to navigate this uncertainty. So I feel like, can you imagine not being empathetic to your employee base at these at, at these times when we're talking about quiet quitting? That's not on the table anymore. You need right. to have these skills. And I actually think now's the time that that men need to be sort of rushing to learn these skills. I was just talking to a, um, a guy who's an executive coach for big CEOs in New York. And he read my book and he was like, oh my God, Julia, he said, all of his big male CEO clients, he said, in the past six months, he said, men have been coming to me, CEOs of big companies saying, I got to figure out this empathy thing. How do I, like, I, I, I hear I got to get this empathy thing figured out. How do I act vulnerable? So I think that people are starting to understand that this is kind of table stakes now. And it's, a, it's yeah. we're not in the era of move fast and break things anymore. We're in the era of figuring out how to work as a team and be effective in uncertain, crazy, scary times. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's fascinating. Um, you mentioned purpose-driven. Um, who is one of your favorite purpose-driven founders that you feature in the book? Well, so just to be clear, there's a lot of nonprofits out there. I did not want to write about nonprofits. Okay. There is a lot of data showing that companies that have an additional purpose along with profits 
can be more successful. So we talk a lot about ESG, but this is really a different category because these companies are in the startup space. These are companies that have figured out how to align their success, they're making money, with having a positive impact on the world. And uh, whether it's a social impact or an environmental impact. And I have a bunch of these companies in my book. Key thing here, women are 20% more likely than men to found companies with an additional purpose. And statistically, purpose-driven companies are better at retaining company, retaining employees, attracting employees, mm-hmm. and motivating employees when times are tough. So I've even talked to a lot of CEOs of companies that are not explicitly purpose-driven about how in these times, times like now, when people are confused and discombobulated and trying to figure out how you know what their future holds, aligning people around a purpose, whatever you really feel like the purpose is, even if it's just helping your customers and understanding that your enterprise software is going to enable people to be more effective, making people truly understand what their purpose is, is going to help motivate them when times get tough. So I think that it's really important to sort of explain how everyone needs to identify their purpose. And if your company happens to have some additional social or environmental good, that's an extra win. Um, There's so many of these these great companies. I think of, yeah. um, I mean, I, I'll just mention one called um, Full Harvest. And what they do is they collect all of the all of the um, produce that is left on, on the ground to rot at farms and they sell it to, to companies that can turn it into green juices or cauliflower crust. And this is just an amazing opportunity that was like literally low hanging fruit. The woman, Christine Mosley, who founded the company, she went to, she used to work at a company that sold $13 juices. And she's like, the reason these juices are so expensive is because we're making juice with pristine fruit that does not have a blemish on it. Pristine, you know, romaine lettuce heads. And she's like, this just doesn't make sense. But she was effectively helping the farmers get this food off their hands and make some money on it. And at the same time, as serving as an intermediary, helping companies like the one she used to work for sell juices for a couple dollars or less. So these companies that are figuring out a win-win, oh, and by the way, you're not letting billions of pounds of food rot the way it was before. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And not not immediately obvious problem to solve. Um, yeah, but yeah, she was like, this is effective. money yeah. to be made and a way to help help the world. Yeah. You had mentioned um, a founder that you were particularly fond of. Yes, Bitwise. Sorry. So there are a couple of companies that I write about in the book that are trying to think about work differently, particularly trying to think about technology-driven work differently. Um, and I think this is really important because I do think we're in a moment of change. Everyone wants to be more efficient. Everyone wants to do their job better. And there is one company, Bitwise, that is focused on upskilling employees. Irma Olguin Jr., who's the founder of this company, she, her, she grew up in a family of farm laborers in Central California in Fresno. And she assumed that her best case scenario was working as a manager at a circuit city or something. She didn't see college in her future. But she did really well on a standardized test. Those scores got sent off to colleges, and she ended up at the University of Toledo. She almost didn't make it, even though she had a full-ride scholarship, because her parents couldn't afford the $78 bus ticket that it was going to take to get her from Fresno to Toledo. So she and her family drove around the fields, and they collected cans and bottles. And they turned those into cash, and that is how she afforded the $78 bus ticket. So she almost didn't make it, but once she made it there, she did a five-year program, got her an an engineering degree, which included an apprenticeship program, and that changed her life. And she realized how something seemingly as small as a $78 bus ticket could turn her into a tech worker. 
and give her massively more earning potential than anyone in her family had ever dreamed of. So she created a company that effectively creates tech ecosystems. They take people from any walk of life, from retail jobs, from factory jobs, from agriculture jobs, and they train them through apprenticeship programs, through education that people don't have to pay for themselves, because these are workers who would not be able to afford a college education, train them how to do coding. And then they get those apprentices and, and then graduates of their program hired to work developing websites and apps for different companies. They also have a whole real estate part of this business to help revitalize um, really poor areas in, in towns that have suffered, such as Fresno. They're also in Bakersfield. Now they're also in Toledo. So they're expanding to parts of the country that have lost jobs through things like manufacturing. And now they're taking those workers, giving them more opportunity through these upskilling programs. And if you think about how we need more tech workers in our country, Irma Olguin Jr. is solving that problem with a really creative way of thinking about creating tech ecosystems in, in cities that have, have been suffering and haven't been able to participate in this tech revolution. Yeah, no, that that's fascinating. And what a what a nice time too, as everything goes remote, to be able to push out of Silicon Valley and some of the other hubs. Yeah, I mean, she said it's so much cheaper for companies to hire her employees to work on their apps rather than hire people who are in San Francisco paying the most expensive rent in the country. Yeah, I believe it. Um, so, what what are you hoping um, readers walk away? with this book so you know if listeners were, were to pick it up they, they what are you hoping that they walk away with um after reading well your listeners should definitely pick it up and they can either buy a copy of when women lead or they can listen to me read it i did the audible reading which is really oh, fun amazing. um so you yeah. could listen to it on audible that was fun um so what I would say is a couple of things. I think that we all need to think differently about how we could be good leaders. We are all leaders in our own way, in our organizations, even if we're just members of a team. And I think this book lays out a roadmap to identifying your own superpowers and unlocking them. Figuring out how to identify what you're good at and really push yourself on your own benchmarks to improve. So much of the narrative about business is about competition with this idea that as companies competing against each other, but in reality, what's most important is self-competition. Figuring out your own benchmarks, your own path, and how you're gonna measure your progress and push yourself against yourself. It's not about competing against your colleagues. So I think that's really important is sort of figuring out what is your superpower, how to unlock it. And I talk about that throughout the book and then especially at the end. Um, so I think that's key. And then I think really breaking free from the stereotypes of what leadership is supposed to look like, what business success um, looks like. And I think that the, the pandemic has really shed light on the fact that here we are, we need to think about things differently. The people who are successful are gonna be creative and in, ingenious in totally different ways. And I think that it's gonna be a lot more about collaboration, getting the most out of teams, learning from your colleagues and figuring out how to motivate people and sort of pull the best from people no matter where they are in an organization. So I hope people see it as a roadmap for their own personal development and then also thinking differently about, about leadership success and business success right now. And then I think these stories are so inspiring. Um, a number of my friends are like, these are case studies. These Each of these women is like a Harvard Business School case study with academic research explaining what it is that she's doing as she's leading in these different ways. So I think it's really Incredible. helpful. And especially people who are trying to navigate the workplace right now, I think it'll be really, really useful. 
All right. Well, that was great. And, and it brings us to the end of the show here. Uh, we'll be back next week with more for you. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this has been Rocketship.fm. 